I must confess I'm tempted to simply pronounce a benediction and we all go home because those two songs of worship were so wonderful and they fit so beautifully into what we're about to look at in today's text. Open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And as you do that, I have a question for you. Well, first of all, I should introduce myself. I, I think everyone in this room knows who I am, but there may be some folks online. Who knows? Coast, it could be coast to coast for all we know by now. Uh, my name is Tim, Tim Robertson, and I serve as one of the pastors here at New Life Church here at Westland. What does the term coronation mean to you? Now, that may be a new term. We live in a land where we don't have a king. At least, we don't think we do. And we're not used to that kind of a word. Many of you know that Debbie and I lived in Bangkok for a couple of years, and we happened to be there during the time when the much-loved king, many decade-long-loved king, I can't pronounce his name because it's about this long, uh, died. And as the king over the kingdom of Thailand, and that is their official title, uh, they went through a year-long period of mourning, and then it was followed with the coronation of the new king, which happened to be one of his sons. But what does that name, what does that word, that term, what does that mean to you, coronation? Do you think of pomp? Do you think of ceremony? Do you think of music? Uh, flags and banners, maybe? Children walking in with flags and banners? Trumpets? How about a drum roll? We used to have a drum set up here. It's not here anymore, but how about a, how about a drum roll? Coronation. The reason I call that to our attention is because just last Sunday, Pastor Eric preached on the first part of chapter 3, and he used the term processional. And he talked about how John the baptizer led that procession, which leads to today. Today is the coronation. Now, you look in your Bible, it says, well, it says the baptism, verse 13, the baptism. Well, I'm here to propose that the baptism of Jesus is, in fact, his coronation. We're just beginning a sermon series on the gospel according to Matthew. And as you walked in this morning, those of you that are here in person, you walked by a poster on the wall. For those of you that are online, you may have seen this slide. We're focusing on King Jesus. King Jesus. Remember, the purpose of Matthew's narrative is to present Jesus as king. And that, my friends, is an objective truth. Whether we believe that or not, whether our neighbor, our co-worker, somebody down the street, whether they believe that or not, in other words, whether it's become a subjective reality for them or not, it doesn't diminish the fact. It is an objective reality. It is objective truth. Jesus is king. And we're going to see that in great detail here this morning. In fact, verses 13 through 17, the last five verses of chapter 3, will serve as a public coronation of Jesus as king. His Baptism by John in the Jordan River, in fact, interestingly, includes all three persons of the Trinity, what we have just sung about. Now, that term Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture, but boy, oh boy, is it evident, particularly in this passage today. We will be impressed by this. 
Let's read the passage. I'll read it for you. And we'll put it on the screen, and also it'll be available online as well as I read. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, Well, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that is John, consented. Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If you've known me for any period of time, you know that one of my favorite sayings is, the best commentary on Scripture is? Exactly. A few people here do know me. We're not going to look at these three passages, but I want to invite you to do this. I'm going to give the, the references to you. All four Gospels. So Matthew here, and then Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels give an account of the baptism of Jesus. That in and of itself means that it's pretty significant. It's pretty strategic for all of the Gospel writers to give an account of this. In Mark chapter 1, there's only three verses. It's very brief to the point, verses 9 through 11. You can look that up later. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, it's only two verses. Luke has slightly different purposes, verses 21 and 22. And then John, in his Gospel, and his purpose is totally different from the other three Gospel writers, yet he talks about this event in chapter 1, near the back, verses 29 to 34. He devotes six verses to this and gives us some really interesting insights into actually what's happening here. So I, I would invite you to, and literally before your head hits the proverbial pillow tonight, look up those passages and see how they interact with what we're going to focus on here today. Here's what I think is a key idea or a big idea in these five verses, at least the one that I'm going to talk about this morning. It is this, that Jesus baptism is his coronation as king. Now, this is not on the screen. Well, the first one is, uh, or it will be in just a minute. There's, there's really three parts to this, and it relates to all three persons of the Trinity. And so I'm going to unpack this big idea. Jesus' baptism is his coronation as king. We're going to unpack it in three ways. King Jesus confirms his mission the Holy Spirit anoints him for service, and the Father authenticates his identity. And if you didn't get those written down right now, we'll revisit that. We're going to work through this as we go through the passage. But Jesus' baptism serves as his coronation to kick off his kingship, his public ministry. So let's look at the first one. It's found in the first three verses of our passage, verses 13 to 15. At his coronation, King Jesus confirms his mission. His mission. You could insert purpose if you'd rather. Verse 13, let's read it again. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
prior to this verse, everything has been about preparation. Prophets predicted Jesus' coming. Angels announced His arrival. Genealogies traced His lineage. Kings traveled a great distance to worship Him. A local king decreed to destroy Him. And here, his earthly cousin, John the Baptizer, ran before him as the final herald, preparing the way for his coming. For 30 years, according to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been relatively quiet, tucked away in a little backwater town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Except for a statement that he made when he was 12 years old in the temple. You remember that? His parents came back looking for him, his mother and his his human father came back looking for him, and, and he says to them, why are you looking for me? He's in the temple. He's schooling the rabbis of the day. Did you not know that I must be in my father's? And that's where the text ends. We insert either house or business. But that's all we've heard Jesus say. And now he's 30 years old. The moment has arrived. John has done his part. Jesus appears on the scene. His mission is intentional. His mission is purposeful. And he arrives for the purpose, we find, of being baptized. The text says, then Jesus came. That's actually one verb there. And it's a, a word that literally would mean to come forth in order to make a public appearance. That's implicit, in actually, even in the terminology that's used there. In other words, Jesus is initiating his public ministry. Even the geography points to purpose. Think about this. Wherever we place John on the Jordan River, and there are different views of thought, way down by the, by the Dead Sea or further up, wherever we place him, Nazareth is a long ways away. It's at least 50 miles away. Some would say 60, even some Bible commentators would say as far as 70 miles, and that's a walk. <laughs> it takes time to walk that far. In other words, this isn't just some like flyby here. No, this is purposeful. This is intentional. The geography demonstrates that there's significant motivation here. There's intentionality here. There's purpose behind what Jesus is doing. Well, if you're like me, you might be asking, why baptism? Uh, that seems strange, especially John's baptism. Why John's baptism? And we know from Luke's account of this that this is a public event. This is not some sort of private baptism held off in secret somewhere. No, there's people all around. They're observing what's going on here. They may not be privy to all that's being said or all that's being seen, but they are observing Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John. And this has been problematic. This has been problematic since the first century. There were those in the first century who espoused a theological, theological view called Gnosticism, the keepers of secret knowledge, and they felt like part of their secret knowledge is, is that in order for Jesus to go through this baptism, he must have been a sinful human being, and so he doesn't really become the Christ person until the Holy Spirit comes on him here. Well, you know what, folks? That's heresy. And that's pretty clear that that's heresy, even from our study of Matthew so far. Because in the very first chapter, even in the genealogy, Jesus is, is presented as Christ, the anointed one. 
he's referred to as in, in terms that would, that would speak of his deity, of his divinity. So that's heresy. Unfortunately, that heresy persists into the 21st century. I'm not going to name names here this morning, but there are public figures that if I dropped a name or two, you would know exactly who I'm talking about, who still espouse that view because they can't get their head around this idea of Jesus needing to be baptized. So we're going to focus in quite a bit on, on this first part here this morning because I think it's so critical to our understanding. The baptism's problematic because verse 6 states that it's a baptism of confession, confession of sins. People were being baptized confessing their sins, and verse 11 says that it's a baptism of repentance. Well, we believe Jesus is God. There is no need for repentance. There is no sin to be confessed, so it's problematic. John's call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand was an urgent invitation for folks to reorient their lives, their values, their habits, their thinking, their behavior. And all of that was rooted in the revelation of God's character, his nature, and his coming reign. That's what John was asking for. In other words, John was basically saying, become a disciple. So it's problematic because is the passage saying, Jesus, become a disciple? I think not, and you'll understand why in, in a few minutes. Jesus need not repent in the sense of turning away from sin, as we must, but he did dedicate himself to completely following God's will on earth. Look at verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Because John's baptism implied that a person needed to or already had repented, John balks at the idea of baptizing Jesus. The term there, the phrase there, prevented him, again, literally translated means to hinder or to forbid. And the actual tense of the word gives it a very intensity to it. And it speaks of something that was done not just one time, not just, hey, Jesus, I shouldn't be doing this. No, he persisted. He's, um, he's unsuccessful, but he is persisting at, at, at arguing, basically, with Jesus. John is earnestly, strongly, intensely continuing to try to hinder Jesus from getting into the water. Think about that. I mean, I just love, you, you read a passage like this, and it's so much richer if you can kind of put yourself into the imagination of the text. And just imagine what's going on here. There's some, there's some cajoling, there's some pleading going on here from John the Baptist, who is his older cousin by six months, right? From the mouth of the greatest prophet who had lived to that date, and that's what Jesus called John, comes this hint that there's something unusual about Jesus. I shouldn't be doing this to you. In other words, you don't need this. You don't need a baptism of repentance. You don't need a baptism of confession of sin. You should be doing that to me. I'm the guy who needs to repent. There's this hint from John's lips that Jesus is different. He's sinless. He's much more than a mere prophet. And that's a wonderful little clue here as to where we're headed in the passage Look at verse 15. Jesus answered him, and I, I just love this. 
let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us, he invites John into the process, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then, and only then, did John consent. Well, at the beginning here of Jesus' public ministry, there's many things happening, but first and foremost, and we're going to come back to this, Jesus is identifying with sinners. As he steps into the waters of the Jordan River, he is literally doing it so that he might identify with those that are in sin. He's not, but he's identifying with those who are. And you know, he's also simultaneously giving us an example or a word picture of of his coming sacrifice, of his coming death, burial, and even resurrection. Isaiah 53, I love this because last week Eric frequently quoted out of Isaiah because Matthew loves to do that. Matthew loves to talk about fulfillment of Scripture, and he's, he's now basically alluding to Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. Remember that verse? We kind of read over that quickly as, as we ramp up to Passion Week and Resurrection Sunday. He was numbered with the transgressors. Well, why was he numbered with the transgressors? Because in the previous verse, Isaiah 53, 11, it says, in order to make many to be accounted righteous, he shall bear their iniquities. So here at the, at the get-go of Jesus' public ministry, he is standing there in the place of the sinner, even though he is not the sinner. Jesus says to John, it is fitting for us. Well, what is fitting? Jesus' answer, by the way, in this verse, uh, are the, his first recorded words since he was 12 years old. And I think that's significant because of what he says. He's been silent. He's been in Nazareth. God has been shaping, molding him. And now, boom, he's, he's about to drop this. And he starts by saying it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It, it's this it is as if John, Jesus rather, is saying, John, I, I know this is unusual, but let it go this time. Allow it, brother. Allow it now. Yield to me this time. I know it's unusual, but it's necessary. Now, Matthew has already used the term fulfill four times already, and he's going to use it eight more times because he's committed to showing how Jesus is king in fulfillment of what God has said in the past, in the prophets, in the Old Testament. And in this case, to fulfill all righteousness, what he's saying is, by the way, righteousness in Matthew's gospel is different. I shared this a few weeks ago when I preached on the birth of Jesus, and we talked about Joseph being a righteous man or a just man. This is not righteousness as defined by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. This is righteousness defined by the Old Testament. Basically, it was a reference to whole person behavior in accordance with God's will, his nature, his coming kingdom. This Old Testament term uh, referred to one who was a faithful, law-abiding person of upright character, careful to obey God's commandments. That's who Joseph was, and that's why he was called a righteous man, a just man. 
Well, here, Jesus is fulfilling his role as the obedient son of God by practicing the required righteousness of submitting to God's will. That's what he's doing. He's simply submitting to God's revealed will out of the Old Testament. He desires to be wholeheartedly obedient to the Father. You hear him say that, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his physical life? Not my will, Father, but thine be done. That's part of just his character. That's part of who Jesus is. Reminds me of Hebrews 5. I am going to put a few verses up on the screen here as we go through, but not nearly as many as some of you would wish. But uh, this one we'll look at. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The righteousness that John and Jesus have their eyes set on here is the righteousness of the kingdom of God. The reign or the rule of God over human hearts and all of creation. It's that state of affairs in which everything is right between God and his created world. This is what John and Jesus are concerned to see fleshed out in the lives of God's people at that point in time. And guess what? This is still the desire of Jesus' heart that this would be fleshed out in our lives as well, living 21 centuries later. Jesus, after all, is the fulfillment of all of God's work in the world. He's the final goal. He's the consummation of God's saving activity. God has sent John as the final herald in anticipation of the king's coming, and now Jesus fulfills God's plan by submitting to this baptism of John. And in doing so, as I've already mentioned, Jesus is identifying with sinners while simultaneously providing a picture of his death and resurrection. Jesus is like no other king. Jesus' kingdom is upside down to what we would expect. He who had no sin now stands in the place of sinners. I know of no other king that would do that, but King Jesus does that. Reminded of Paul's teaching to the Christians at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if I was in a a different church in a different part of the country, there would be a roaring amen at that point. Just saying. Just saying. This message would also go from 35 minutes to probably an hour and 15. Just saying. So feel free at any point in time to agree to God's truth. For our sake, he made him to be, no sin who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. Jesus did not come just to teach. Jesus did not come to merely set a, an example, a model of how to live, or maybe some sort of revolutionary leader of that time. No, he came to identify with sinners, And ultimately, in his death, he identified with us as sinners. Because 
he took our place. He substituted himself for our place. This, uh, this throne that he's headed towards uh, as he's being uh, coronated here was a cross. And all along the way, Jesus is identifying with those in need, is identifying with sinners, because that's how this king works. That's, who, that's the kind of king whom we gladly serve. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, a great theologically rich passage of Scripture. Paul says, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, central to Jesus' purpose in being the Savior of the world is his own faithful obedience to the Father. We don't always think of that. We think of what we get as a result of his sacrifice. And we think that that's central. You know, I'm central to the sacrifice of Jesus. No, I'm not. Central to the work, the purpose, the mission of being our Savior and the Savior of of the world is that he himself was faithfully obedient to the Father. And that's what's being expressed here as he steps into the Jordan River. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Be found in him. Paul urges, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Just to summarize this first point, that uh, the point of King Jesus is confirming here and really elaborating on his mission. Just in summary, all the righteousness that would be required of men and women before the high court, the throne room of God, all of that righteousness required, where did it come from? Jesus performed it. I got nothing. If I'm standing there, I got nothing. Neither do you. But we stand there as a result of putting on, clothing ourselves, robing ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus. And so it's necessary for him to identify with fallen humanity. And that's what he's doing in the waters of the Jordan River. He's identifying with the sinner even though he is without sin and then he goes on to provide that righteousness for us. And then he's sharing in our baptism and we in turn then share in his baptism. Jesus, King Jesus, confirms his mission. Well, the second point that we find in verse 16 is that at his coronation, the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus for service. Let me read the verse again. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. If we had an hour and a half this morning and we were in the classroom over here and I had PowerPoints and all kinds of stuff, we would unpack this in great detail because that's wonderful. But I'm not going to do a whole lot with that. We'll do a few things, um, even though my bride between services said, you need to talk more about the dove. Well, I'm not going to talk about the dove this morning, but there's so much here. There's, in, in a sense, you could say I'm going to leave a lot on the cutting room floor here because I want to focus in on a couple of other things, namely that at the very beginning here in verse 16, God is is declaring his approval. We typically go to verse 17 for that, but 
we see it here beginning in verse 16. Because the heavens are opened, it says. Now, whether only Jesus saw that, or Jesus and John saw that, or some of the crowd saw that, we don't know. And there's different theories on that, and the other gospel writers give some clues to that. But the point is, it's that the heavens are open. Mark says they're actually ripped open. They're actually torn open. And that's a telltale Old Testament sign that God is about to say something. He's about to give a revelation. And that's exactly what he's going to do in the next verse. In distinct and dramatic fashion, the Holy Spirit is going to come down and the Holy Spirit is going to anoint him. By the way, you probably know, but that term anoint in the Old Testament, the Hebrew term for that is a word that we translate Messiah. In the New Testament, the Greek term for that is Christ. So when we're calling Jesus the Messiah or Jesus Christ, that's not his last name, it's a title, we're saying he's the anointed one. And we're seeing today, this is how that happens. The Holy Spirit is anointing him for service to fulfill the mission that he's just been confirming before our very eyes. In fact, John has already declared earlier in the chapter that Jesus is going to come and he's going to baptize with fire and with what? The Holy Spirit. But before he does that, he gets anointed with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's just a wonderful connection here that we're in, and we're invited into that relationship with him. Several passages, well, not several, four. They're not going to be on the screen. You can jot them down quickly, look them up later. But I want to read portions, again, two from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, early in his prophecy, Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. We've learned from the genealogy that that's referencing Jesus. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a direct completion, fulfillment of what Isaiah was referencing way back in chapter 11. And then Isaiah 61, verse 1, it's famous because not only what Isaiah said, but it's famous because Jesus takes this passage. About a month and a half after he's baptized, he's in his hometown again of Nazareth, and he walks into the synagogue, and he pulls out the scroll, and he gives the reading of the day. And he opens the scroll of Isaiah to chapter 61. And he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And if you know that story from Luke chapter 4, you know that he drops the mic. You know that he closes the scroll and sits down. And, and it's like, whoa, shazam. And there's mixed reactions to that, correct? But it's, it's a beautiful thing. Peter, later, after Pentecost, after Jesus has already ascended to heaven, Peter finds himself after having had a vision about unclean animals, he finds himself in the home of a Gentile, namely Cornelius, a 
centurion who lives in the city, the port city of Caesarea. And he says this to Cornelius and his family. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I love that. I love especially the fact that Peter is identifying Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus is an objective historical person, not just an idea, not just a fable, not a story. No, Peter is is quick to identify him as a real person, a historical person from the city of Nazareth. And then later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, Matthew, reflecting on all of what we've been saying here, says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Some of Matthew's favorite terms. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit anoints Jesus to fulfill his mission, anoints Jesus for service. The third and the last of the three points that I want to make this morning occurs in verse 17, and it's this. At his coronation, Jesus is, his ministry, his identity, it gets authenticated. The Father authenticates Jesus' identity. Verse 17 reads, And behold, a voice from heaven, uh, we know this to be the voice of God, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Folks, this is the clearest expression of God's own view of Jesus. These are the very words of the Father. And if we didn't catch it the first time around, Matthew's going to repeat it. God's going to say it again on Mount Transfiguration. Remember that story? Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, and then he's got three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And Peter's rambling along. Oh, God, oh Jesus, maybe we should create some tents. And, you know, he, he doesn't know what to say, so he's you know, opening his mouth, exchanging feet. And, and at that point, God repeats himself. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And I love the a little addition. And I hope when we get to Matthew 17, I get to preach this because it's a wonderful passage. God says, listen to him. Pay attention to him. I can't help but think he's telling Peter that, but it applies to all of us, right? We're just like running around in a flurry of activity, and God is saying, no, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. Pay attention to him. After more than four centuries of uh, prophetic silence at the close of the Old Testament, God himself now, here at the Jordan River, God himself now is speaking once again, and he's revealing himself to his people. I know that many of the ladies in our church are reading through the book of Hebrews. I would call to your attention something I'm sure you've already read, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that's exactly what's going on here. God is putting his uh, good housekeeping seal of approval, so to speak. He's authenticating who Jesus is, his identity. But you know what? What's beautiful about verse 17? It goes beyond just authentication. It goes to approval. Uh, th- there's, there's an amazing um, 
feeling here that's exuded as well. The term beloved literally means esteemed or dearly loved or even favored one. And we know that God is actually quoting himself. He's actually using uh, phrases and words and verses out of the Old Testament. A couple in particular, Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then most importantly, Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. The proclamation of the Father here reminds us that there is only one way, one way to come into relationship with him. There's not multiple roads. There's not multiple prophetic voices. There is one way and one way only. And how do I know that? Because God said that. The original audience who would have heard this or read this in Matthew's gospel, they have no excuse from this point forward to pay attention to the red letters in their, in their Bibles. No, they probably didn't have those, but we do, right? And we don't have any excuse either. God is saying, listen to him. This is my son talking to you. Jesus is not just a prophet, one prophet among many. He is the only, the one and only way to me, the Father. And the phrase, with whom I am well pleased, literally, in whom I have found pleasure. And even the, the structure of the word is, is such that it means it's, it's expressing a settled opinion. This isn't some dad saying to his son, I like you today, but we'll see you about tomorrow. No, this is a settled view, a settled opinion, with whom I am well pleased. In this passage, we see Jesus exactly as God wants us to see Jesus. And the timing of this proclamation, I think, is significant. This authentication that happens from the voice of God from heaven, uh, it, it occurs after Jesus has placed himself in the position of sinners. After he's put himself in a substitutionary role for sinners. After he's personally identified himself with sinners. That's when God declares, that's my son. I'm pleased with him. And then, looking forward, if you just glance at the first verse of the next chapter, you'll know that this declaration immediately gets attacked, right? Verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus is now coming out of the water. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And whoever's preaching next week, I think Eric is doing that here. He's going to be talking about that because Satan immediately goes after the, the, the declaration, the truth of God's word. And doesn't he always do that? Didn't he do that in the garden with Eve? Are you sure he said that, Eve? Certainly he must have meant this by what he said, right? And he continues to do that today. Satan, our adversary, will always attack the, tr the, the clear truth claims of God's word. And that's why this is so significant. Well, Jesus' baptism is his coronation as king, confirming his mission by the anointing of the Holy Spirit for service. All the while, the Father is, is authenticating his identity. Since Jesus is king, there are some implications to that. 
And there may be folks in this room, there certainly may be people online who have not acknowledged Jesus as king. Paul says there will come a day when everyone will. Everyone will bend the knee. Everyone will profess the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. Those of us who have bent the knee, who have entrusted our lives to his care, there are still implications every day when we wake up. Am I going to live in the kingdom of God by Jesus' authority and according to his purposes, his agenda? Or am I going to do my own thing over here? And you know what? Unfortunately, too often Tim finds himself over here when Tim really needs to be over here. I'm speaking just for myself, but I'm sure there's at least one other person, maybe two in the room, that can totally identify with that as well. Here's, here's a beautiful thing. As we close, the, the last three verses of this gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28, we know it is the Great Commission, verses 18 through 20. In that Great Commission, Jesus is not only inviting his disciples, but commanding his disciples to go and make other disciples out of all the nations. And you remember what he says? As we do that, what do we do? We baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them to observe everything that he has commanded us. And then he promises us that he'll be with us to help us do that. So I like to connect it this way. Just as Jesus identified with us in that baptism of John, we now are charged with the privilege and the responsibility of calling others into that relationship, of making disciples, others who will follow him as we are following him. And in doing so, we identify with him through baptism as well. And we do it in the name of the Father, in the name of King Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we get overwhelmed when we realize the impact of the truth of your word. So simply, Lord, we ask you, plead with you to take this truth of your word and drive it deep into our hearts, not just our minds, but into our hearts, and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, it would take root in order to bear fruit that would call others into relationship with you and that ultimately would bring glory to you. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.